You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, the verses 21 through 40. I haven't checked how close exactly we are to it, but I think we're about halfway from Christmas time, the time in which we generally give our attention to Luke 2 and other passages about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's good to come back to this because it's not only for that time of the year, it's for every day of our lives. The reality that God sent his one and only son into this world to be our savior. In doing that, he revealed his love and his kindness, the love and kindness that will have our attention in our text this morning. And so we turn to Luke chapter 2, hear about this amazing fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. It's amazing revelation of God's grace, the appearing of his love and kindness in Jesus Christ. Luke 2 at verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, that is, Jesus, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought him in the, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phenuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming upon them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Our text this morning is Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Titus chapter 3, we've been going in the past months through this book of Titus. The letter that Paul wrote to Titus, who was on the island of Crete, especially giving instructions about what he was to do in his work of uh, work in the church there, appointing elders and teaching. 
And he continues in that theme of teaching in this chapter 3 of Titus. And so we read here the word of God. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it can happen so quickly that you don't even realize what has happened before you're dealing with the consequences and you're trying to clean up the mess that you just made. It happens so quickly because it seems... It happens so naturally. Think about this past week. Think about a time when you were at work or at home. One of those times when, before you knew it, you had just reacted. You had just reacted to to something that had happened to you, someone something someone had said or some situation, and before you knew it, The anger was right there. It was in your mind. It was on your tongue. Or that quick comeback that just puts someone down on the spot without giving it a second thought. And you hope that if you had given it a second thought, you would have changed your thought. But you didn't. Because it just happened so fast. And all of a sudden, you had a conflict on your hand. Or all of a sudden, you had treated someone terribly, and they felt that from you. A time when you were at work, and and the situations were all lining up, that the next person who came along, you just gave it to them. Are you dealing with your children at home? A small sequence of, or the sequence of small events is lining up until finally you've had enough, and it doesn't matter which child is doing what. You're going to let them hear how you're feeling. You're having a coffee with your friends and conversation turns to another friend of yours and you just can't help but share that little tidbit of gossip that they had shared with you in confidence. But you just want to add it in, you throw it in and it's gone before you 
can take it back. And in all these situations, before you know it, you've got a problem on your hands. And you've got to deal with it. You've got a conflict. Have you had one of those times this past week? It happened so quickly and suddenly things are going really wrong. It happened so quick and easy. And the reality is that it happened so quick and easy because it's like the air that we breathe. It's all around us at all times. This, this reaction to anger. This reaction of sin to our circumstances, to the people in front of us, the people that we love and care about. It's the air that we breathe. It's how we treat each other in the world. It's how the world treats each other. It's the easy and the natural solution. And it happens in the church as well. It happens in the church at large. You have the sense sometimes that, that wow, aren't we all together? We're, we're all together. We're united just like the brothers in Psalm 133 and it's good and pleasant. We're all focused on serving Jesus Christ. And then the next moment, everyone seems to be at each other in one way or another. We're, we're suspicious about this person and what they're doing. We're grumbling about this person and what they're doing. We're gossiping. We're criticizing. We're not focused at all on being united in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And suddenly, we are actively promoting disunity and driving the church apart. It happens so quickly and easily. It happens, you might say, so naturally. Now this last example about what was happening in the church is what had happened to this church on the island of Crete. It's easy to forget by the time we get to chapter 3, but you have to remember chapter 1 where Paul had written about these false teachers who are in the church in Crete or who are affecting the church. And they're causing division and unrest in the church. And so Paul is, in a sense, as he's telling Titus what to teach to the people, he keeps coming back. There keeps being this resonance of of the opposite of what the false teachers were doing. And it shows up here in chapter 3 as well. And even more, you might say what he's doing is he's saying, what do you do in that moment after? What do you do when the controversy shows up? What do you do when the disunity shows up? What do you do when people are at each other's throats? Well, he says, you look to the gospel. you got to remember the love and kindness of God. That's where you need to go. That's where you need to go. You need to go to the love and the kindness of God. Remember the love and kindness of God. Keep it alive in your hearts and in your minds. Focus on that. And then focusing on that, do good. Because when the love and kindness of God appears, brothers and sisters, Your life changes. When the love and kindness of God appears, your life changes. And we'll spend this sermon unpacking what that means. When the love and kindness of of God appears, your life changes. We'll consider first what this change looks like. So we're sort of further ahead in the change, what the change looks like. And then we'll 
come back in the second point where this change comes from. And finally, we'll look at what this change rejects. What this change has, has no time for in the church of Jesus Christ. So when the love and kindness of God appears, your life changes. In chapter 2 of Titus, Paul had given Titus specific instructions about what to teach to various groups. And now in chapter 3, he's getting more general. He's teaching to, he's saying what Titus is to teach to the whole church. And as we saw actually in chapter 2, it seems that there's this, there was this revolutionary impulse that people had when they would hear the gospel, when they would hear about what Jesus Christ had done. Remember that Titus had told everyone to be self-controlled. And why tell everyone to be self-control unless there's this impulse to not have self-control when you hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And Paul had told Titus to teach the wives to obey their husbands and the slaves to obey their masters. Now, why tell them that? It seems that when they heard about the freedom that they had in Jesus Christ, they would be prone to interpret that freedom as a, as a license or excuse to, to throw off the yoke of oppression, the yoke of obedience to their husband or to their wife or to their own desires or to their master. And Paul says very decidedly in chapter 2, he says, no, no. The, the freedom that you gain in Jesus Christ isn't that kind of freedom. It's not a, it's not a revolutionary freedom. Not the freedom to, to throw off obedience and to live however you like. That's not what Jesus Christ has done. No, this freedom is a freedom to willfully and self-consciously choose to obey and serve and love as an act of devotion to God. It's a freedom to willfully and self-consciously choose to obey and to love. Because we weren't doing that before. But now by the grace of God expressed in Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of sins, we can do that. Remember, a slave, a slave doesn't choose to obey his master. A slave's just a slave. And a master's just his master. And the master's got the bigger stick. And so the slave has to obey. That's the natural order of things. But Paul says to slaves in that situation, he says, obey your master not because he's got a bigger stick. Obey him because you're a servant of Jesus Christ. Changes the character of his obedience. A natural man does not choose to obey and to submit and to love. But a Christian does exactly that. And so Paul says, as he as he's going to a wider scope in chapter 3, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Now, who are those rulers and authorities? Well, in the way that that expression is used so often throughout the New Testament and in other Greek literature, it's speaking about the political authorities. It's speaking about political rulers. So submit yourself to the political rulers that are over you. You see, again, that that revolutionary impulse, and we hear about it today as well. People think that as a Christian, serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, 
means that you don't have to follow the, the commands of, of Caesar or of the Prime Minister or of the Canadian Revenue Agency or of the bylaw officer. I'm a Christian. I, I serve God. I have a higher authority. I don't have time for all those other authorities. What people will say. That's not the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. The freedom that we have in Jesus Christ is to actually, as citizens, willfully and self-consciously submit to the authorities, to obey them, to honor them, to respect them. To do that as an act of devotion to God. So it's not a revolution of one kind, but if you think about how people tend to treat their political rulers, this is certainly a revolution of another kind. This is very countercultural. Governments in, in the popular mind do not exist to be honored and respected and obeyed. They exist to be slammed and disrespected and disobeyed as much as we can without getting caught and punished. But to actually serve and to love and to obey willfully from the desire of your heart as an act of devotion to God? That's different. That's very different than the message that we hear. Now, realize, this is not obeying as as the goody-two-shoes who's going to use obedience as a way to get what they want from the political rulers. We're not obeying like, like a lobbyist so that we can, we can exert our agenda on them so that we can get what we want from them. No, we're loving and obeying and serving them. Why? Because God has put them over us. God has put them over us. They are our authorities and our rulers and they're ministers of God. So we have a responsibility. To obey them, and to honor them, and to love them. But our responsibility goes beyond that as well. Christians must work for not only the good of their, their ruling authorities, the rulers and authorities over them, but for the public good as well. They're to be ready to do whatever is good. It's a transition phrase that, that moves us from thinking about the political rulers to thinking about our whole our whole community as uh, beyond that the whole community in which we live from from the political rulers to the you might say the polis the city the community be ready to do whatever is good if you go right to the end of verse 2 toward all men we've already seen how the grace of God affects the basic relationships between husband and wife, between slaves and masters. Now Paul is suggesting that this grace-changed life has an impact on the whole community. What the grace of God does when you, when you know it, when you see it, when it appears to you, is it changes you so that you are able to do good to all around you. This, going back again to chapter 1 and to those false teachers, this is exactly the opposite of what the false teachers did. The, the false teachers in chapter 1, they destroy communities. And they don't contribute to the common good. They take from the common 
for their own good. They don't contribute good to the common. This is because of the radical selfishness that they employ. A selfishness that they share in common with the world at large. So rather than help others, we read in chapter 1 verse 11, they, they destroy households. And they, they steal. They swindle money from people. The false teachers take from the common for their own good, but those whose lives have been changed by the grace of God, they give good to the community, to people at large, to those with whom we live. Those to whom the love and kindness of God has been revealed live in such a way as to actually contribute to the public good. Now, this certainly includes things that we think of today as as political issues. But there's a broader understanding of that word political as well. It just has to do with the community. As it relates to the community. So, this grace-changed life affects the community. Not only in the political realm, but in our lives. how we With our neighbors, with our co-workers, with the people that we live and interact with. And our families and beyond. But what does this look like? Well, in the first place, in verse 2, it slanders no one. Slanders no one. How can you be claimed to be committed to contributing to the common good, the good of the community, when you're cutting down members of the community? It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. So this grace-changed life, it doesn't slander other people because it's, it's committed to their good, not to their ill. This is the first rule of being a good neighbor. You have to honor the reputation of your neighbor. You have to love your neighbor. You have to love them, not in a general sense, but them as they are. You have to love them. You have to honor their reputation. And if you love them and honor them, you will not slander them. You love them and honor them, you will work for their good. So for the Christian citizen, good politics starts with how you treat other people. not first of all about what policies you support what platform you have it starts with how you view other people are you prone to slander them to bring them down or are you prone to contribute to their good you're prone to honor them and love them so this grace changed life it slanders no one in the second place it's peaceful and considerate See, the false teachers are the ones who stir up controversy. They love controversy because it's part of their approach. The divide and conquer. Drive people apart. And then you can manipulate the situation towards your own good. But Christians are are to pursue a completely different way. Christians pursue the way of unity. The way of peace. And the path of peace is the path of consideration, or as that word could also be translated, gentleness. Christians are gentle in their approach. They're considerate. In honoring the reputation of the other person, they're gentle in their approach toward them. And they work for peace. They're always working for peace. Whatever community they're in, if you're you're working in a committee, if you're working in a family, if you're working in a church, if you're working in a in a neighborhood or a city, the Christians, those changed by the grace of God, are to be the ones who are working for peace there. Using gentleness as an approach. 
And third, the grace-changed life shows true humility. True humility. This church in Crete was dealing with conflict. They had these false teachers coming in, teaching these things. Paul saying, Titus, teach the opposite. And he's going to tell us later in our text how to deal with those people who are causing division in the church. How do you deal with conflict? This is a real pertinent question. What do you do when there is conflict? What do you do when brothers and sisters aren't united, aren't living in harmony? What do you do when you're not living in harmony with someone else? Well, the course to take is not always clear. It needs to be worked out according to wisdom. And the end is not always clear. Will you actually be able to resolve this conflict? But the starting point, brothers and sisters, is always clear. The starting point is humility. The starting point, when you are at odds with someone else, when there is a conflict, your starting point is humility. Humble yourself before the Lord. And humble yourself before your brother or your sister. Begin from there. Think of the example of our Lord Jesus Christ when he washed the feet of his disciples as we, as we looked at that several weeks ago. That's an example of humility, of, of willing and willingly and self-consciously making yourself less so that you can serve others. This is the approach. The approach of our Lord Jesus Christ is the approach of humility and that's the approach that we are to take. The starting point. That's the approach that we're to take with all people. Take that with your family. Take that with your friends. Take that approach with your bitter enemy and everyone in between. Ask yourself, what can I do in this situation to serve them? To show love for them. If you truly honor them, if you truly honor them, we spoke about the first one. Slanders no one. It honors their reputation. If you do truly honor that person, then you will seek to serve them. That's the approach that humility takes. That's what this grace-changed life looks like. Now, this is a this is a strange kind of life, isn't it? This is a life that that's not natural. It's not the life that we are prone to live. It's it's not the life that, that exists on the job site. This is not how everyone relates to each other as they, they walk around the job site. Oh, how can I serve you? And, and how can I help you? Oh, and I'll honor your reputation and I'll love you. No, this is not what happens. The exact opposite is what we're prone to do. So where does this life come from? How is it that, that Christians are, are going to show this life in the way that they live? That's where we come to, where this changed life comes from. In our second point. These verses of 3 through 8 are verses that if you're, if you're someone who highlights their Bibles, just highlight this whole section, verses 3 through 8. Because it, it's so foundational and fundamental to the work of God in Jesus Christ, to the gospel. It's a beautiful section. It teaches us about the source of a changed life, the love and grace and mighty power of God. Now Paul would have Titus urge the congregation toward humility as we saw at the end of verse 2. 
And this leads him to acknowledge why they should be humble. You should be humble because he goes on in verse 3, at one time you also lived among them. You also lived among them. That's process your humility through that. You can identify with these people. Now we need to say, just as a, as a warning, that sometimes the fact that we used to identify with a certain group of people does not lead us to be humble toward them. Isn't that very true? It can be, ha- it can happen that when we used to struggle with a, a certain sin, or when we used to believe a certain idea, or when we used to live a certain way, but now we don't, we can become proud and arrogant. We can think, well, yeah, I used to live like that. I used to think like that, but I've, I've progressed way beyond that. And you'd be a lot better off if you'd progress way beyond that as well. This is clearly a sign of your immaturity, your lack of understanding. If you were sanctified as much as me, you wouldn't believe and do those kind of things anymore. So we can, we can adopt this proud and arrogant attitude toward those whom we used to identify with. We think everyone should be like us, knowing better than to do the things that we once did in our ignorance. But that's not what Paul's tone is here. Paul's tone is not one of condescension, but rather Paul's tone is one of identification. Remember, you can identify with these people, the ones that you're trying to do good to. You can identify with them. He's saying, Remember where you came from so that you can love these people. Give you an example. Read a book recently called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by a woman who was once a lesbian, radical feminist, English professor. Lesbian, radical feminist, English professor before she became a Christian in what she describes as herself as a train wreck process of conversion. This is what she says about relating to someone who had gone in, who was in her former struggle. She says, shortly after becoming a Christian, I counseled a woman who was in a closeted lesbian relationship and a member of a Bible-believing church. No one in her church knew. Therefore, no one in her church was praying for her. I told her that my heart breaks for her isolation and shame. And I asked her why she didn't share with anyone in her church her struggle. This woman recognized that she had a struggle. She recognized that she was living in sin, but she wouldn't tell anyone about it. And this woman said, Rosaria, if people in my church really believed that gay people could be transformed by Christ, they wouldn't talk about us or pray about us in the hateful way that they do. The author of this book identified with that person. Identified with that person living in that sinful lifestyle that she had once embraced. And it caused her to reach out in love for that person. A love that wanted to see the transforming power of Christ go to work on that person and help them and support them and guide them through to a transformed life. That's what it means to identify with someone in their sin. Specifically, Paul says, we were once foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by passions and desires. 
We lived in malice and envy, hated and hating one another. This was the world that we lived in. Do you remember being in that world? Do you remember living in that world? Where this is just the way that you operate. You hate people and they hate you, and so you hate them back. And you have a desire and you fulfill it. You don't think twice about what it means to someone else or what it, the consequences for anyone. As long as the consequences aren't going to hurt you, you think, go and do it. This was the way that we lived, Paul says. Now, why did we live that way? Well, given the whole context here, I think it's clear that Paul would say, because we didn't know any better. Because we didn't know any better. We just did and we thought what was natural to do. Hatred and envy and disobedience, that was the air that we breathed. That was the water that we swam in. I'm going to steal a little story from a writer by the name of David Foster Wallace. He writes this little parable about two young fish. Two young fish that were swimming along one day. Nice day. And they meet an older fish swimming toward them. And as as the he passes by those two younger fish, the older fish says to them, Morning, boys. Nice day for a swim in the water, isn't it? And he keeps swimming along. And the two younger fish keep swimming along. And after a while, they, they stop. And the one fish looks at the other one and says, What's water? If you've only known one thing your entire life, if you, the only experience that you have is that of water or of that of, that of being hated and hating each other, of, of being sinned against and of sinning against others, of being manipulated and manipulating others, of suffering from other people's selfishness and causing others to suffer from your own, then this is how you're going to live. You're going to live in there just like a fish swims in water. You don't know any different. You don't know that there's another way. You won't question it. It will be as natural to you as a fish swimming in water. Selfishness, disobedience, idolatry. That's the water that natural man swims in. In spite of the fact that God has written eternity on their hearts and God has revealed himself in his creation. So water they swim in because, as Jeremiah says in chapter 17, the heart of man. That's where the problem is. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. So what? How do you get out of that? If that's the water that you swim in, how does anything change for you? Well, Paul says it changes when the kindness and love of God appear. Everything changed when the kindness and love of God appeared to us. We didn't know what kindness and love was until God showed it to us. Then suddenly, rather than being hated, we were loved. Rather than being deceived, we were told the truth. Rather than being dealt with in in retribution, we were dealt with in grace and mercy. God, in his love and kindness, Paul says, appeared and saved us. Well, naturally, the the religions of the world would say, you'd save people like us, good, decent people like us. We're deserving of salvation. Going back, this is why we're prone to become arrogant 
when we look back at people who are like us, we're prone to become arrogant if we think we got from there to here by our own effort. If you did it, you can be proud of it. If you used to live in malice and, and envy and, and hatred, and then you woke up, pulled up your bootstraps one day, and walked on over to the side of love and grace, then you can be proud of it. Because you've done it on your own. But the Christian gospel, the Christian gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the love and the kindness of God that appeared in Jesus Christ says that it's not from the righteous acts that we performed. It's not because we did it, but it's because of God's mercy. God reached in completely of his own work and power and plan and saved us. You didn't get there. By your own work, God took you, brought you there, placed you there for his own glory and praise. When Jesus Christ comes showing a life committed to radical service and to others, then we in turn have the capacity to say, you know, maybe life isn't all about me. When we see Jesus Christ committing himself entirely to the service of the Father in worship with every breath that he takes, then it makes us say, maybe everything I've been worshiping my whole life that hasn't been God is is something that's unworthy of being worshipped. When Jesus Christ appears, showing love to the extent that he gives up his life for our salvation, then it gives us the capacity to say, maybe I'm loved. In a world where we're covered, we're born covered in the dirt of sin, and all we know how to do is to throw dirt at others and to tell them how dirty they are, God then has shown us Jesus Christ, and He sent His Spirit to wash us through the washing of rebirth and renewal through the Holy Spirit. This, in verses 5 and 6 to 7, is speaking about the entire process of salvation, from rebirth through to renewal, with justification and the inheritance of eternal life at the end. It's speaking about the entire process of salvation. God's loving and kind salvation is is one that works from the very beginning of rebirth. You don't get born by your own power. That's God's work. No baby comes out of their mother's womb by their own power. They come out because it's time to come out. You don't get reborn by your own power. You get reborn by God's work. So that work, all the way to the end, the gift of eternal life, it's all God's work. That's why the gospel leads us, brothers and sisters, to deep humility. Because even though we are deeply corrupt and wicked and undeserving and selfish, God, completely by his own mercy and grace and love and power, saves us, redeems us, regenerates us, washes us, and gives us eternal life. When the love and kindness of God appears, your life changes. Yes, in his love and kindness, God will change your life. It might feel like a train wreck. It might make you feel like a fish out of water. But he will change your life. 
In fact, probably better to say, he will give you life. But what this changed life rejects shortly at the end. The grace of God radically changes your life and reorients you so that you, you don't have time for those selfish and destructive and divisive ways that you used to live in. And that means in the church that you don't have time for those false teachers because what they're promoting is exactly the way that we used to live in. They're still living in that way. Yeah, they're trying to operate in the church, but the church of Jesus Christ says we don't have time for that. Paul says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they're unprofitable and useless. And he had earlier called those false teachers useless. That's how he's, who he's talking about here. He's talking about the false teachers who were causing division in the church. So how does the church deal with people like that? Well, Paul says, warn them once, warn them again, and then have nothing to do with them. The thrust of what he's saying is, don't let them shipwreck the purpose of the church. Divisive people, false teachers, will suck you into their narrowly focused, selfishly motivated world of fights and endless divisions. They'll suck you in until that's the only thing that you're concerned about and you lose sight of of serving God and of doing good for others and of serving them in humility and not slandering others and all those things that are good and right for us to be doing. They suck us into this narrowly focused division and and argument and controversy. But those changed by the love and kindness of God, they have no time for that. They're devoted to doing what's good and doing good to others and spending their time being careful and deliberate about that. Now we need to be clear. We need to be clear. Paul is not saying to Titus or to the church in general, "Take take this very straightforward approach to anyone who disagrees with you. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 through 26, And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. What Paul is talking about here in Titus are those people whose error is clear, whose intent is selfish, and who are working to bring division in the church. When it's clear, Paul says, then be decisive. Warn them twice and then leave them on their own, he says. Let them work for their own self-condemnation. They're able to do that by themselves. Because in the church of Jesus Christ among those who have have seen and who have been changed by the love and kindness of God, there's no room for self-glorifying and godless ways. There's no room for division in a church committed to peace. Because the church is the place where the grace of God is proclaimed. The church is to be the place where divisive attitudes and proud hearts are, are being washed and changed where peaceful spirits and humble hearts are growing. The church is to be a temple for God's glory in this world. And at the same time, it's to be a retreat. It's to be a safe place for for people who want to get out of that division and slandering and hating and harming. It's to be a place for those who want to get out of that. they got nowhere else to go except for in the church. Because here we're committed to being considerate, to loving, 
to showing the same love and kindness that we ourselves have seen. The church is to be the place where you can taste and see and hear the love and the kindness of God, revealed in the saving work of Jesus Christ and applied through the work of the Holy Spirit. The church is to be the place where lives are being changed. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.